Welcome to the afternoon session. This is Living in and Designing Cities, which I think is going to be really exciting. Um, my name is Penny Kibbers. I'm a local ACT Green. Um, and we've got four different very interesting speakers today. Uh, we're going to start off with Dr. Jason Byrne from Griffith University, who's going to speak about urban policy for our planet of cities. Jason is an urban geographer and environmental planner. He was a fellow in the Centre for Sustainable Cities at the University of Southern California, LA. Jason is also a senior fellow with the John Hopkins University Institute for Policy Studies. And I will hand you over to him. <laughs> Please forgive me if I remain seated. I, there's no remote here and I'm a bit tech dependent. Uh, I'm intending that this might just be a, like a kind of provocation to get a conversation started. There's not much you can do in 10 minutes. And then secondly, I'm also going to have to risk uh, repeating some stuff that I'm sure you all know already, but just to ensure we have a kind of common frame here. Uh, so we now live in a predominantly urban world. Um, the rate of urbanisation on the planet has been uh, startling. Uh, this is from a uh, report from the UN from 2014, which shows that uh, a few years back we kind of crossed that critical threshold where more than half the world's population live in cities. By 2030, 2050, 2050 it's more likely to be three quarters of the world population that are, are living in cities. So we need to get our head around that in terms of what it means for environmental impacts, but also for how we live with each other and our connection to other species. This rate of urbanisation is not uniform though. Uh, some parts of the world ex have experienced uh, rates of urbanisation early on, like Australia. We've been a predominantly urban country from the outset. We're a nation of cities. Uh, other parts of the world, like Africa and Asia, as you can see from this uh, graph here, um, are still undergoing rapid urbanisation. China, for example, uh, is mind-numbing in its uh, urbanisation. Nor do we see urbanisation expressed uh, uniformly across city types. Uh, so what you can see here is that even though we do have an increasing number of megacities mega cities around the world, 10, 10 million people or more, uh, we're seeing a lot of urbanisation occurring at that small to medium-sized city scale. And this is important to bear in mind when we think about cities like Canberra, the Gold Coast, Hobart, other cities like that in Australia. Right, so there's a set of challenges that come with uh, rapid urbanisation and these have been in the media and I'm sure you're all quite familiar with them. They include things like water, food and energy security, housing affordability, species extinction, ill health, unemployment, these kinds of challenges. We tend to think about these challenges in a siloed way. Uh, so we think of them either as environmental issues or social issues or economic issues. And what we often fail to do, both in urban policy and in green thinking, is to recognise their interconnections and the way they cross-cut. Uh, so let me give you climate change as a first provocation. From our personal experience, uh, it was just in a session where we had experience, we were talking about that before, um, we know that many Australian cities almost ran out of water in the millennium drought. Some major cities were below 20% of water remaining in their dams. Uh, some almost ran dry. Uh, this is a major problem, not just in terms of water for people, for living, uh, but when you think about the way that you use water in your everyday life. Um, Mosquito-borne disease, vector-borne disease is another impact of climate change. Uh, as the tropics are moving southwards, we're going to be seeing diseases showing up in places like Brisbane and the Gold Coast where they haven't been before, including potentially diseases like malaria. 
Um, from part of my research recently, uh, talking to some of the local governments in Queensland, we have things like the Irukandji jellyfish beginning to show up uh, in uh, Morton Bay and Redlands. And that's just scary when you think about uh, that, that kind of pace of change. And of course, uh, we see uh, things like cyclones and dust storms and flooding uh, in the news regularly. But these kinds of impacts don't uh, affect our population uniformly. They're experienced differentially. So people of colour and low-income earners who are not very well represented in policy and are not very well represented in the Greens, I have to say, either, um, we tend to be middle-class and white, uh, that they bear a disproportionate burden of environmental harms like those associated with climate change. So my first provocation is, as a party, how do the Greens engage like their American counterparts have done with people of colour and low-income earners around urban policy? Uh, these include things, for example, like people with disability not being able to flee natural hazards or um, Aboriginal people in remote communities uh, losing already precarious housing. I also think we have to hold city planning firmly accountable for some of these impacts. Planners uh, like to pretend that they're just technocrats and following their master's orders, um, but planning is firmly implicated in a lot of the problems that we're seeing in cities around the world at the moment. These include things like sedentary lifestyles, which are uh, associated with highly automobile-dependent lifestyles. Um, we're seeing uh, rocketing rates of obesity, uh, diabetes, coronary heart disease and certain types of cancer um, in uh, Western countries around the world. And, and these are linked to things like diet as well, where we have food deserts in many parts of the cities, uh, inter internationally, especially in the US, but increasingly in, in cities like Melbourne in Australia and Auckland in New Zealand, where certain populations can no longer access uh, fresh fruit and vegetables in walking distance from their houses uh, and are finding their neighbourhoods becoming hypersaturated with uh, fast food outlets. And uh, here's an example from the US. Right, so the second provocation we need to think about with climate change is uh, heat islands. Uh, green policy, like much of urban policy in Australia since the late 1980s, has been about embracing density. And density is seen as, uh, as a good thing to achieve in our cities. But when we look at density, uh, what we often fail to recognise is that we are losing backyards and urban green space across our cities at a very fast rate. Uh, we're seeing that in cities like Melbourne, for example, where backyards are being carved up and uh, separate houses are being put in or multi-storey uh, apartment buildings, these kind of things. When we lose green space, we increase temperatures. Uh, so temperatures in the urban core can be 8 to 10 degrees hotter than surrounding suburbs, as indicated by this uh, really nice um, figure from the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, but that doesn't take into account, that's just ambient temperature, it doesn't take into account temperatures of over road surfaces, can, which can be up to 20 degrees hotter in areas without good green space. So thinking in an interconnected way, it might seem logical that we uh, bring trees back into our cities in large numbers as what the urban government is envisaging, envisaging with its urban greening agenda. I'll return to this point in a second. With heat in cities, we must remember that with every one degree rise in temperature, we get electricity demand increasing by two to four percent. Now this is important when we look at the northern suburbs of the Gold Coast, for example, which are now 93 percent dependent upon uh, air conditioning. There's uh, almost complete saturation of air conditioning. If electricity prices are spiralling, like we've seen recently, and people are living in dense environments without good access to trees, 
the second statistic becomes more alarming. Uh, above about 25 degrees in Australia, mortality increases 3% with every one degree increase in temperature rise. So that's a very high rate of deaths that's attributable uh, directly to heat, uh, with heat waves. Uh, we know if we have green walls and green roofs and even small areas of green coverage, we can reduce ambient temperatures by up to eight degrees Celsius in some places. So that would seem to be like a logical thing to do. All right, here's my second provocation to think about this afternoon. If we are to become an effective social movement, an effective political party, we need to reach out and engage better with marginalised and vulnerable communities. And in the US, for the last 30 years, the environmental justice movement has been doing just that, looking at how uh, people of colour and low-income earners bear disproportionate burden of environmental harm, uh, for example, lead paint or water pollution or having toxic waste incinerators or schools built on toxic sites or, uh, in our case, heat. But also how these same communities have disproportionately poor access to environmental benefits like being close to the seaside and cooling breezes or having access to healthy food and safe jobs. So we might think of this in a kind of connected way of an ecological model of health where we need to be looking at cities as ecosystems themselves, not as artificial entities. If we rethink cities as kind of connected socio-ecological systems, it enables us to begin to imagine some alternative uh, ways of planning for cities. We're doing some of this already. For example, we're looking at increasing active transport. So bicycle use is being promoted here in Canberra, as it is right around Australia and in other cities in the world. The idea is to get people on a bicycle, they will become more healthy because they're burning calories rather than sitting on their butts in a car. And it will also improve air pollution because we don't have so many cars on the road. But what if it's not comfortable to cycle? What if it's too hot to cycle? What if cycling in higher levels of humidity associated with climate change could lead to your death, as recently happened in Queensland last year with a young man? So again, we need to start to rethink some of these interconnections. What if a fetish for densification and a fetish for mixed-use development means that we're cramming people into smaller apartments in hotter suburbs and hotter areas in the city and then condemning them to premature death because of exposure to heat. So again, we need to be thinking through some of these connections a bit better. This entails not just mapping and education and monitoring, but also revising building codes. Okay, so enter my provocation about urban greening. It's not a panacea, it's not a cure-all, unfortunately. I wish it was. I'm a strong advocate of urban greening. I love urban greening. I've worked with colleagues on urban greening, but Aside from the very wide range of benefits that are associated with greening, like a restored mental health and improved levels of physical activity and cooler temperatures and potentially even food, uh, stress reduction, we also have a range of negative impacts of greening. If we use the wrong species, for example, like uh, London plane trees, we can land up with higher levels of airborne particulates or some species emit high levels of volatile organic compounds, which can lead to elevated rates of asthma among children. So again, we need to be thinking through these connections quite carefully. Uh, we might also lead to human-wildlife conflict. If we are planting species that are going to lead to a concentration of flying foxes in our neighbourhoods, that might be awesome for people who love flying, flying foxes like me. Um, some people don't. What if we land up with vector-borne disease becoming an issue as well in, in these kind of suburbs? So again, uh, we need to think this through a bit more carefully. Uh, I'm going to skip urban agriculture and just come back to you with uh, my last final provocation so I don't burn up too much of my time. 
and uh, give the other speakers a bit of a chance as well. So here's some left of centre, pardon the pun, ideas for what we might be doing in cities as we rethink urban policy for a, a planet of cities. These include ideas like industrial ecology. So industrial ecology is basically the notion that we can make the raw material outputs of, of the wastes of one uh, industry, the raw material inputs of another. So we're essentially closing some material loops. Kallenborg in Denmark is a classic example where they have an oil refinery, a power station, fish farm, pharmaceuticals, uh, greenhouses for growing vegetables, all co-located. So the waste heat from the power station and the oil refinery is used for um, growing vegetables. The fly ash from the power station is used in a nearby gyprock plant. Uh, the sludge <laughs> from the power station and the oil refinery is used for pharmaceuticals um, and uh, for cosmetics. So um, there you go. I mean, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Uh, so if we start to rethink this example, an ecosystem of industries, we might turn to places like Kolkata rather than Kalimborg. And in Kolkata, they've been looking at uh, taking sewage from the city and using it as a raw material input into fish farming. Um, they treat the water to a tertiary standard along the way. Uh, the fish farm effluent is then pumped onto rice paddies and vegetable growing area for growing fruit and vegetables and food. And those vegetables in turn return to the city. China's been doing this kind of thing for 2,000 years, night soil. It's old technology, but if we use it in a new way, we might be getting some bigger benefits in our cities. Harnessing some of the, um, the benefits of co-location in cities. Biogas is another example. We could be taking all of the sewage from our cities and using that uh, to generate electricity and gas for cooking. Uh, so just rethinking things a little bit differently. Okay, and then finally, um, when we do look at green urbanism, some of these principles of green urbanism like zero waste and maximising biodiversity and having local uh, self-reliance and local leadership, zero fossil fuel use, we need to convert uh, what are nice principles into actions. So my final example is from Korea, um, from downtown Korea where they tore out an expressway uh, which was reaching the end of its lifespan. Uh, it uh, was suffering from concrete cancer from the stream that they had enclosed in a concrete sarcophagus and built the freeway over the top of. It was going to cost them more to fix or tear down that freeway and rebuild it than it did to simply remove the freeway entirely and retrofit a linear green space to the city. And we saw some of these theoretical benefits uh, really manifest. So they saw an 8 to 10 degree temperature reduction along uh, areas close to that greenway. Property values increased. This is one of the negative impacts of greening, unfortunately, but property in values increased by about $3 billion. Tourism went through the roof, uh, and about 20 species returned to the city that hadn't been seen there for close to 100 years. Uh, so simple actions like this can uh, deliver multiple benefits, but again, uh, I would caution just being a little bit careful in, in how we do this. So I'm right on time, I think, so thank you. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. I'm sure there are, will be a lot of questions, but as with the other sessions, we might hold them all to the end um, so we can have a good discussion then. Okay, next up we have um, Professor Marcus Foth from QUT, and he's going to talk about connected urbanism and cohabitation in the smart city.
Professor Foth is uh, a professor of urban informatics in the QUT Design Lab at QUT. He's also an honorary professor in the School of Communication and Culture at Aarhus University. I'm not sure that that's right, Denmark. Um, and he's authored over 180 publications, which in academic speak is really awesome. <laughs> Lee, a lot, <laughs> obviously. Thank you so much, Penny. Um, hi, everyone. Great to see so many of you interested in, in cities and um, the future of um, not just humans, but um, the planet and the relationship to cities. Um, there's two messages I have uh, that I try to convey in the, um, the 10 or uh, 12 minutes that I got. One is around the connected urbanism uh, in relation to also to the conference theme of everything is connected. And then the other one is about um, cohabitation in the smart city. Has anyone come across this term, smart city? I hope it was um, in the context of watching the ABC Utopia series, um, season, <laughs> the last season, the second episode, yeah, Smart Cities. Um, I find myself often thinking Utopia is a bit of a reality and they've taken a whole bunch of CCTV footage from government departments and are just streaming it. So my background is uh, threefold and our research lab has also this triad with regards to its approach around people, place and technology. So we have people from um, all three backgrounds working together. We kind of exchange our theories and methodologies and try and coalesce and challenge each other in thinking around cities and how um, people and technology come together in the built environment. Um, so this is the famous Venn diagram that a lot of professors have to have in their slides. This is mine. Um, and we position urban informatics there in the, um, in the middle of the social sciences, the, the technical um, areas of IT, computer science. And in the third area is the spatial um, stuff around urban planning, architecture, and, and design. Now, a lot of the time when people talk about the smart city, this picture comes up. Um, do I stand in anyone's view? Can you all? I'm going to run around a little bit. Um, this is a picture of Rio de Janeiro. It's a secret location, apparently, but I think people have figured out now where it is within Rio. It's a control room that IBM have installed, and a lot of the data feeds that the city produces, they come together in this control center. And so they have these administrators sitting there. Um, I think at the time it was heralded as the um, largest conglomeration of screens in um, South America. And they're busy looking at traffic and congestion, at crime reports, at um, all sorts of things in order to, to monitor what's going on and in order to administer and operationalize the city. Now, a lot of these city functions that are top-down, they're obviously necessary. There's a lot of stuff happening in order to make a city work and function that happens behind the scenes. And so if there is a way for us to create efficiencies, well, that's actually fine, especially if I sit in a traffic jam between Brisbane and the Gold Coast and nothing's moving, I want more efficiency. I would love to, you know, for, for these guys to figure it all out. But in so many cases, there's two problems with it. One is this problem. There's this very technocratic approach that whatever the problem is, we'll find an engineer engineering solution. So if the problem is congestion, we'll build another lane. If the problem is prisons, we, we build more, more prisons for um, dealing with crime. And so this very simplistic notion that there's a problem and there's a techno fix is something that is very inherent in the smart city debate that we are trying to, to unpack. And so the two um, propositions that I'm um, trying to make in the, in the short um, period of time, they're trying to address this, as well as the other part to it, which is that um, there's no one actually saying that it has to be just um, specific um, security approved administrators sitting in this control room that have access to this data. I want that access in, in my phone. I want to actually have all these data streams coming together. This phone has the computing power to, to do all the decision support that I need in order to figure out what's going on. But they say, no, 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 we're going to figure it out for you. 
right? We're going to tell you which way is the fastest way to get from here to the airport. Ideally routing you past billboards, advertisement, or whatever roads, you know, Westfield Shopping Center might be on the way that has advertisement outside. So we don't actually see how the algorithmic curation of some of this data um, is being um, computed and put together. Now there is these four steps, and I've kind of simplistically um, called them City 1, 2, 3, and 4.0. Um, it, it seems to resonate a lot with people in local government and in a kind of technical um, language uh, culture, um, and so I'm just sticking with that for now. Um, on, the, on the lowest level, you pretty much have the city in this very simplistic notion of a relationship between people that live there, the residents, and then you have people um, that are working for city government, and they are the administrators. And so it's a very simplistic kind of relationship between administrators and uh, residents. Now, what happened now more recently is that um, a lot of... Uh, tech providers, IBM, Cisco's, the ones that are selling sensors and IoT, Internet of Things, um, as well as the big accounting firms, they thought it would be a great idea to tell cities that they are not cities. They're businesses, they're corporations. So rather than treating a city like a city, you actually treat your city as a business. And so all of a sudden this relationship changes where the city um, governments become service providers. They actually think of themselves as a um, corporation that is in the business of providing services, and ergo the, the people living there become the consumers of those, those services. So that's where some of the results that we've seen is um, a very simplistic um, application of technology to cities, but also um, the kinds of um, ways that these control centers are just um, reducing the complexity and the diversity of cities to something very simplistic that can be put into very simplistic equations about um, growth, about efficiency gains, and also about optimization, about different, different processes with regards to mobility or with regards to um, waste management and so forth. But the problem really is that at that level we forget that a city is far more nuanced, the cultural um, stuff, the social stuff, all the kind of fluffy stuff that people have been researching for forever in academia, they say, oh, academics, what do they know? Let's you know, just push them aside, and here come um, people that give us positivistic um, insights, truth. We actually have all, all this data, and the data gives us truth, and on the basis of the truth, we can make decisions about cities. Now, that, those early examples of smart cities, what um, has happened is, Cities that were rich, they um, adopted a lot of the, um, um, the strategies and they, they started drinking the Kool-Aid. Now, once they did, they, because they had um, the, the money to buy and invest in technology, um, they, they realized, actually, these cities are not any more livable than um, they were before. In fact, they become more alienated, they become more clinical and so forth. And so this next generation of cities, they actually said, hang on a minute, we're not going to just invest in these very simplistic strategies. We're going to think first and let's ask the people. Let's turn them into Participants, let's um, engage in um, community engagement strategies, community consultation strategies. So a city government all of a sudden changes the role yet again to um, being a facilitator. Now, for, for us, that's, that's, that's good. That's a good step further. But it's still not good enough because we're looking at um, these other examples. And they've been kind of simmering kind of under the surface. So there's graffiti artists. And I'm going to go through a couple of these just rather quickly, um, just to give you a bit of an illustration. Have anyone, has anyone come across parkour? Anyone practicing? <laughs> um, so graffiti artists, they look at the city as more like, you know, a canvas that, that is just 
requiring artistic expression. And parkour is, you know, they're looking at, for instance, this fire escape, not really as a fire escape, but as a challenge to, you know, um, jump down there without breaking your neck. Parking day. Um, so this is where people reclaim um, urban space. They feed the parking meter. They put in AstroTurf, um, deck chairs. Maybe they even offer cocktails. For one day, this picture shows um, Salzburg in, in Austria on the 16th of September. And um, for that time, it's a demonstration that people and citizens can reclaim public space. Um, so rather than it being reserved for a car, well, we'll turn it into a park, an actual park. This one um, is uh, called yarn bombing or sometimes guerrilla knitting. People go out into the um, urban environment, take measurements, come back with um, ready-made um, knitting and they wrap up the um, urban environment in those really beautiful, I think, installations. Uh, this picture was taken in Munich. It's called the Diner en Blanc, the dinner in white. Does anyone participate it? We have them in Australia as well. Yeah, there's a couple of nods. So the event is kept secret until the last minute. People register that they're interested in attending. And then um, just before the event, people are given the location. They all turn up in white with white picnic utensils and they have a big alfresco dining experience. But in fact, it's, a, it's an open air protest. The protest is about reclaiming the city. This is actually a very busy intersection in the inner city of Munich that has been occupied by these diners in a peaceful manner. And this is a form of participatory urban agriculture or seed bombing. There's recipes of how to make these seed bombs online. Um, it's fertile soil that is dried with seeds on the inside. You throw them over um, fences where um, construction companies have bought things, but after a global financial crisis, they didn't have the money to go ahead with their projects. So in the meantime, people take matters of landscaping and urban agriculture into their own hands and are throwing these um, across the fence in order to try and grow things um, in order to attract um, further pollinators and so forth. So the, the reason why I'm showing you all these examples is because progressive cities have now realized that these things shouldn't just happen kind of under the surface. We maybe just kind of look at them and think, well, that's cute. They're actually starting to embrace this as something where we go from city 3.0 to the next level, which is 4, and say, well, actually, we want to collaborate with these guys, and we want to see people and more of them as co-creators that are actually actively co-creating the future of the city. So this is the first kind of um, takeaway. And just quickly, the second one is about one level up yet again. So this is kind of preparing for what I would eventually call City 5.0. What we haven't really touched yet in this um, kind of uh, theory or in this kind of analogy is urban sprawl. And um, we've heard just before um, some of the um, pros and cons of densification and so forth. Um, this picture was taken about um, half an hour from here. And this is at Sleepy Boroughs. Is anyone from Canberra and knows about Sleepy Boroughs? It's a wombat orphanage. Um, they look after um, wombats where the mother would have been killed in a car accident and the joeys are being um, looked after until they can be released in the wild. And this is uh, walnut um, on my shoulder there. Now, the problem at the moment with wombats is that they suffer from sarcoptic mange, and it's a very agonizing and very painful disease. It's a mite that crawls under their skin, and it pretty much um, eats the wombat alive. They scratch themselves to death. Um, they turn blind and deaf. They are seen during the day. Sorry to see, for you to see the um, 
these images. There's a project at the Western Sydney University where these sightings of both healthy as well as mange wombats are um, plotted, and lots of people participate in a citizen science effort. Now, you'll think, what has this to do with, with cities? Well, there is actually a correlation. So if you all imagine your wombats, right, then you want to have um, fun with the wombats over there. And you want to make love with wombats over there, right? But now I'm city of Melbourne. I'm going to expand and I'm going to build a highway to, um, you know, Ballarat, Bendigo, to Sydney, a train line to Adelaide, whatever it might be. So you can't actually see your friends anymore. First of all, you get hit by a car. And second of all, there's actually a physical barrier. So the DNA of those local populations get, get weaker. And as a result... Um, scientists that CSRO have found that the resilience of local wombat populations um, to fight um, sarcoptic mange is reduced to such an extent that they turn locally extinct. So in Tasmania, for instance, um, we had local populations of um, two, three hundred that are now gone. They're all gone. So the decisions we make about cities obviously is connected to things that are not in our purview, and to things that don't have a voice. And that's really what um, the second part is about. Coming back to this notion of technology, um, we're quite critical of that as well and the relationship. So um, a lot of the time when we um, introduce technology, we say, oh, it's in the cloud. There's data and there's sensors and so forth. And it's so weightless. It's invisible. It's on the phone. In fact, um, these data centers where the cloud is stored, they currently produce 3% of humanity's energy. If you think of everything humanity does, it's actually quite a, a large number and that's increasing. That's just, you know, things of clicking um, stuff on a phone or an iPad. Now, the other problem is that all of these devices um, that are um, run by lithium-ion batteries, they require cobalt. And the cobalt, uh, a big chunk comes from Australia, but an even bigger chunk comes from the Congo. And this is video footage taken by investigative journalists at the Washington Post. Um, and they found that these guys just pretty much dig holes wherever they believe that they can find cobalt in their local area. They dig it up all by themselves or maybe with a friend, and then they take it to the market. And this entire part, this, this kind of first mile of the cobalt supply chain is unregulated. So these guys could get injured. They have no, no union representation. They have no way of um, kind of demonstrating the evidence of their existence in their their conditions, which is why companies like Samsung or Apple, but increasingly now electric vehicle companies like Tesla and BMW, would not be able to actually verify the supply chain of where all these um, products um, come from. If we make decisions about smart cities, and we say we need public Wi-Fi, we need smart streetlights, we need solar panels. Well, solar panels require inverters. Inverters require rare earth metals. And if we talk about batteries, um, in, especially in the context of this uh, discussion about um, Elon Musk solving sol uh, South Australia's um, energy um, crisis, in uh, quotation marks, well, all of these batteries will contain cobalt that comes somewhere from there, and no one talks about it. On the other side of the equation, it has to go somewhere because all of these companies operate with plant obsolescence. So after a while, these products, I just updated um, this iPhone to iOS 11, and now it's, it's very slow, the battery only lasts for half a day, and the screen is going funny. 
So there are certain protocols that people are speculating, and there's more and more evidence accumulating that plant obsolescence isn't just a conspiracy theory. It's, a, it's, a, it's an actual strategy to get you to buy new products. If this happens at the scale where you're not actually making a decision, where it's, for instance, a, a city making a decision about hundreds of thousands of light poles that require new sensors or that require new um, antennas or whatever it might be, it will have a huge impact on people's um, resource consumption and the kinds of way that we have to dispose of these items. I'm going to wrap up, but I'm going to um, show you this piece um, for you to look at later on. It's done by Al Jazeera, and it's uh, another investigative journalism piece about what happens in Accra, in Ghana, because it's one of the world's largest dump sites for electronic waste. And so they have um, quite confronting footage, which I think is... Um, quite useful to engage in, in order to really realize what happens to the things that we discard. If you think of how many phones you've had, to kind of think, well, where are they right now? They might be in this video. So to finish up um, this um, table of you know, cities, at the, the top level, I really believe we have to kind of consider cohabitation. And I actually want to propose to change the diagram that, uh, that Jason showed us, where the, the human, the people are in the center. I actually think that's the problem. That we are thinking that humanity is in the center, we need to actually decenter the human in the design of cities. We need to think of the entire ecosystem and how it's connected first, rather than having the human in the center. Now, two ways to do this. One I think is really interesting is to not look at the engineers and the Elon Musks of the world, but to look at lawyers. So I think this is really cool which is that um, two rivers in, in India and one river in New Zealand have been given legal personhood. Now, I think it's a great first step and a great experiment. I'm very interested to see what happens next. Is there going to be a committee that represents them? Is there going to be mechanisms and governance structures to, to then look after those rivers? And the other one is about how to um, engage in in mutualism and cohabitation in the city. This is a project by my colleague, uh, Natalie Jeremy-Jenko at New York University. And she's built this uh, butterfly bridge, which I think is a great idea. So um, I'll show you the next one so you see it in reality. She's pretty much connected these two parks uh, across the street in order to ensure that butterflies would fly higher because they're attracted to the, the flowers and the blossoms at. Um, um, that bridge in order not to be smashed by, by trucks and cars um, at the highway. So it's kind of like an animal bridge. But you see these animal bridges right now only on highways somewhere in, uh, in um, outside cities. So it's kind of about thinking, how can we live together with, um, with nature in cities as well? Some of the ideas we've um, put together in two books, this one is called the, the Citizen's Right to the Digital City. And this other one is called um, Digital Participation Through Social Living Labs. And I think I haven't kept an eye on my time, but I'm going to finish up here. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Forth. <laughs> that was amazing. There's certainly a lot in there to think about. Um, next up, we have two speakers from um, Polis Plan, which is a mobile planning company. Um, we have Neil Mini De Silva and um, Stephen Lauros. Stephen is the author of Rethinking the City, an exploration of the historical ideas that underpin the organisation of cities, showing how these ideas are being transformed by the internet. 
And Neil is a civil engineer who has worked for local government for many years, managing water systems and the natural environment. She is an accomplished documentary photographer and author of Fate or Destiny, who passionately pursues her dreams and inspires others to do likewise. And they tell me they're going to answer some of the questions I posed in my talk yesterday, so I'm looking forward to hearing that. <laughs> Thanks, Penny. Um, yes, yeah, so my name is Stephen Liaros. I'm a town planner, background in engineering, civil engineering and uh, environmental law. Um, and we've set up this uh, mobile consultancy to um, really explore the idea of the city. What is a city? and um, challenge some of our preconceived ideas about that. And uh, to do that, we've labelled ourselves as designing cities for freedom, equality and compassion. So if you started with those values, what would the city look like? And if your mechanics of designing a city was a circular economy as opposed to the current, uh, what we call a linear economy, uh, what would the city look like? And so we've got two parts of the presentation. My part will be trying to pull together all of these ideas of historically economics, uh, history, economics, politics, literature, linguistics, religion, everything, everything is connected after all, um, through, through the lens of a circular economy and this ongoing tension between necessity and freedom, which is something that's uh, not really uh, espoused or talked about very much, so planning for home and hope. And then they'll talk, we'll talk about the mechanics of uh, how you actually design cities along those lines and a project that we're working on at the moment in the Tweed. So starting with the economy, um, there's, there's a, a story, a narrative building in Europe about the transition from a linear to a circular economy. And it's mostly focused on products. But we're concerned about how this would apply to cities. So the linear economy is this kind of idea of you take resources, you uh, make and use products, and then you dispose waste. And so what that means is we value the economy in the centre the place where you make and use things more than you will value the environment where you take things or dispose things into. And so that creates the kind of city that we have. I don't know what, why that's gone off. So it's a linear economy city, economy city, which is about drawing things into the centre. So it's valuing the centre, the economy, uh, more than the environment. And that's, that's the logic by which we build our cities. Um, and that's why we create cities with this kind of profile. And so, of course, you have uh, the periphery and the environment on the edge, which are valued less than the centre. You have economic growth, but only in the centre, and you have social inequality and environmental harm uh, on the edges or outside the city. So that question was, what is a city? And again, to understand how to go forward, we have to understand the history. How did we get to this way of thinking about cities? And a city is a community of citizens. That's where the word comes from. So our idea, so in the, in the Greek, it's a polis, uh, and, and the idea of a, a citizen was a civilised person. In order to be civilised, you have to, had to have a polis, a place where um, the citizens gathered. And the, and the democracy is power in the hands of the citizens. Right, so that's what the, the, the word democracy means. Um, so the question then is, who were the citizens? And the citizens were, of course, the free men. And we constructed this society, we created this freedom for a portion of the population in order for them to pursue sport and art and philosophy and politics and music and so on. Um, and we did this by dividing the society into two groups, the free and the workers, and the workers did most, mostly agriculture. 
And so this was a plan for freedom through inequality. By pushing our responsibilities onto others, we became free, we added a burden onto others. Now, the solution to the problem, like it's a valid problem to identify that we have certain necessities, we have to do certain work, and the question is, how do we do, do that work in order to achieve some freedom, in order to do some of those things that we value? So, although the, the, the solution was wrong, patently wrong as we can see, the, um, the, the question is still a valid question to ask. How do we balance necessity and freedom? How do we pursue freedom in order to uh, free ourselves of of work and, uh, and uh, the economic domain. And so the Greeks created this division of society which still stands today. This is the logic of our society, dividing it into two groups, the, free, the freedom domain and the work domain. And so that informed uh, the very language that we use in terms of the household being the woman's domain. The household means ecos is the, the domain of uh, work and the economy, it was the private domain, and the public domain was the domain of men, of free men in particular, not all men. And so we've, we've, uh, we retain this idea of a divided society and a way of achieving freedom through inequality through this idea of creditors and debtors, rent seekers and, and, uh, and, and uh, renters. And it, it's the fundamental division of our political system as well. So the people who have freedom want more freedom. The people who don't have freedom want what they want, want what they have. So all of our pursuit is about freedom, the pursuit of liberty. And so the Greeks imagined their city in this way as the polis, which was the men's domain, and the household was outside of the city. And you might think that we've moved on beyond that, but in fact, that's how we still design our cities. The, the, the urbanisation report, for example, the UN urbanisation report that says that 50% of people live in cities also says that there's no clear definition of what a city is, what an urban area is as opposed to a rural area. And it's a completely arbitrary boundary that its main focus is to focus our attention on this city. And so one of the definitions that some countries use is areas that don't have uh, infrastructure or services are not part of the city. And so the city which is congested gets more infrastructure because our focus is on the congestion in the city and the areas that don't have any infrastructure continue to get no infrastructure. And so we've uh, created this artificial uh, division that also separates us from our food system. And so we need to have a, a new worldview that includes the food system, thinks more holistically, and includes the food system as part of our, of our design of cities. And food in the city would give us a more holistic approach. It would um, connect us to land and to nature and to the environment through our food systems. Uh, it, would be, uh, it would provide for our basic needs. And it would allow us collectively to ensure that everyone has equal access to these basic needs. And so um, I'll finish my part on, on this idea that we're developing of planning for home and hope. How do we create places in which 
we can satisfy our basic needs, but we can do that as efficiently as possible, not shifting the responsibility onto others, but do that efficiently in order to um, satisfy those basic necessities, those natural needs that we have to do, uh, and then get beyond that to hope for and aspire to other things, to pursue other things that each individual or each community can then pursue in the way that they want to, that no centralised authority is telling you what to pursue, that you should just be pursuing more work. What we should be doing is planning for those basic needs, do that efficiently, and then create the freedom to pursue other things. And I'll let Neil explain how we might do that. Thank you, Stephen. Okay. So let's just look at our basic needs of food, water, energy, and housing. And as Jason was saying, um, at the moment, we look at these in their silos. We design and plan for them in their silos. But as we all know, everything is connected. Our water systems can store our energy. Our grey water can be treated and used to irrigate our crops. Our black water can be composted. Um, even beyond that, we are at the moment talking with a lady who is looking at creating the perfect machine where your plastics can be made into pellets that can then be used in a 3D printer to print something else that you might actually need so you can process your waste locally. So when we start to look at the connections between each of these systems, we can actually transition to a zero-waste society, which is what the circular economy is all about, and this is what we are in the process of trying to do. And by doing this, we can also start to eliminate those complex supply chains that I think Marcus was talking about, and look at cities as resilient holes, whole systems, um, but also uh, start to trade within our bioregion rather than transporting food all around the world. And this is also how we minimize our ecological footprint. Um, and if you look at how indigenous people lived on this land for thousands of years, this is exactly how they lived. They had a network of water holes connected by song lines. And the water hole was not just a place where they got their water. It was also where they got their food, where they found shelter, where they educated their children. And so using some of these models, we have come up with a vision that has inspired the work that we do. And we call it an internet of cities, but it could be an internet of planets. Each hub is a resilient whole, using all those ideas we talked about of connection between our basic needs, um, as well as new technology like 3D printing that will enable us to pretty much be as resilient as we can while transitioning to a way of life that would lead us to zero waste. And so let's just come back to looking at the hub in a little bit more detail. There's also that idea of population. How big is this little village going to be? Each place will have a population that will match the capacity of the land. And so when we start to look at ideas like water and food, and we start to do the modeling, it will give us an idea of what that number might be. But we are thinking that it might be around 150 to 200 people. 150 is the Damba number. 
And the research tells us that's roughly the amount of people that can live in a place and have real relationships with each other. But we are not just talking about um, people uh, who are going to live there permanently. We're also going to design for a transient population. So people who might be passing through might also have capacity to live in this place for a little while and contribute to the development of this place and bring new ideas into the people living in this village. And so to this end, we have um, spent the last two years traveling around Australia, talking to audiences, local governments, politicians, to see if we can find a place where these ideas might resonate. And at the moment, we have a number of projects, but I'm just going to mention this particular one in Tweed, which is um, probably the key one for us. We came to Tweed Council because they have a DCP, a development control plan, that actually talks about regenerative development. This is now going beyond sustainability, which we see as a balance point, to a regenerative uh, model that talks about regenerating the land, about leaving it in a better condition than what we found it. And so the idea is to get a parcel of rural land, um, and then set aside some land for wildlife, set aside the land for agriculture, and then rezone a small portion of it for living and work uses. So to this end, we have partnered with CSIRO, who are doing some amazing modeling in that water and energy nexus. In fact, Simon Toes, the researcher we are working with, is in involved in the Jinandara project that is happening here in, in Canberra. And so um, we really want to look at a microgrid. So not, rather than looking at an individual house and saying how big should your rainwater tank be, we want to look at the entire village of 150 people and plan a system that can um, supply the water needs through water harvesting, bore water, um, cleaning the water, etc. Give them all the water that they need um, by harvesting what is available in that catchment. And Tweed is a perfect place to do this as our first demonstration project because it has one of the highest rainfalls in Australia. And with respect to agriculture, we're working with a, a nutritionist researcher at UQ who will look at different nutrition plans and convert that into an agricultural plan. Um, so I won't go too much into that. But if you look at utilitydevelopments.com.au, we're starting to develop a new website that is talking about these ideas. Um, and yes, the live and work space is also about creating a place where you can live and work in the same place. So you cut out all those transport trips. Uh, we're going to have a transport plan on that project who will come up with a green transport plan. Um, we, we want to look at EV charging stations that will eventually connect a network of these places from perhaps Talgum in the interior of Tweed all the way to the airport at Kulangata. That's the big plan. Um, and so the, the vision that we have sits within that system that you're very familiar with in terms of an embedded circle of a network of, of circles with the environment on the outside and um, society and, and, and then the economy right in, as a small concentric circle. And so I wanted to say 
that there's been a lot of rhetoric and conversation about the universal basic income. Um, this is already being trialled in Europe. But what we want to say and propose is that perhaps the idea of creating a place where your basic needs of food, water, energy and shelter are provided might be an alternative to giving people a basic income. Because once you have that platform, it frees you up to go in search of whatever it is you're passionate about and also reduces the amount of fund, um, income that you might need to survive if your basic needs are met. And with the advent of robots and the talk that 40% of our jobs might vanish in 10 years' time, perhaps with all that spare time, people could then contribute to the place that they're living in to keep those systems of water and food and energy running in exchange for getting the produce or the harvest of those systems for free. Um, the other thing, of course, is, is 3D printing. is completely changing the way our cities are functioning. If you look at Amazon, for example, they don't warehouse all the books that they print these days. There's a 3D printer in India, and if someone wanted Steve's book over there, all they would do is print it off when it's ordered. So all these models, all these... Um, warehousing and transport and everything that we're doing now is going to eventually disappear. And so we need to really rethink how we live and how we design our cities. And so we need a new narrative. We need to stop talking about the take-use-dispose model and introduce a new model that is more holistic, that has more connections, and that is really circular, acknowledging that we want to strive towards a zero-waste community. And part of that narrative, then, becomes to, is, is about also looking at some of the ideas that came out of the French Revolution and sort of rethinking how that can be applied into the way that we design our cities in a way that we can minimise the work that we do, distribute what we have a little bit more equitably, and bring a holistic way of thinking into the whole equation. So, thank you. Thank you, Neil and Stephen. That was extremely interesting and exciting. Um, I just want to thank all of our speakers once more for their innovative and insightful talks. And I think we have about half an hour for questions and discussions. Uh, thanks, Mark Parnell from South Australia. Um, and thanks, everyone, for those presentations. It's great. I wanted to ask about the politics of urban transformation. Um, and at, at its most simplistic level, um, we've got uh, things we can do in new areas, greenfields, new cities. You know, if we had a blank canvas, how would we do it? And then you've got the retrofitting of existing cities where, you know, all of us currently live. And what strikes me is that... Um, uh, most of the debates tend to be fairly micro rather than the macro we're talking about. So it's, I want a park, I don't want a mosque, um, I don't like high-rise, you know, you name it, we all know it, this is what our newspapers are full of. Um, so I'm interested to know how we engage people in existing cities um, and uh, help uh, promote a vision that um, cities aren't, you know, wicked evil places and that 
development isn't bad, it can be good, you know, you might have more people coming into your neighbourhood and it will be better, um, which doesn't resonate with a lot of people. So I find myself often lining up with people opposing high-rise, not because high-rise is necessarily intrinsically evil, often it's on the basis of um, the government disregarding planning rules and the Australian sense of a fair go doesn't like that it's zoned for two storeys and they're letting them build nine. So that's a fairly easy one for us to do. But the big picture question is how do we engage communities um, in retrofitting our cities to do some of the things that you've been talking about? Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my area of research is in political economy at the moment. And uh, I think it's crucial to remember that politics and economics are just two sides of the same coin, right? So people don't get engage in the political sphere if they're over-consumed by the economic domain. So when someone is trapped by debt, endless responsibilities and routines, commuting, um, you know, it's, it's just the tension and the stress of everyday life, you don't have the time and space to think beyond that. And, and that's what politics is, thinking about the bigger picture. And so um, our particular approach is about saying there needs to be a different way of thinking about economics, which frees people up to think about um, broader things than their, their own basic necessities. So that, that's our approach, and we're targeting it at a local government level because that's where you can have an impact. You can change strategic planning policies. Um, so we're acting in that political space um, to create a new economic paradigm. And our target communities are younger people who can't afford to get into the market, uh, younger people who are connected with the transition, people interested in blockchain and Bitcoin and gaming and robotics and so on, um, older people who are, are getting towards the end of their life but don't have any assets for various reasons. Um, so there's lots of different groups that are starting to think outside, like they're finding themselves completely disenfranchised by the system. And so that's that's how we're tackling it. I just, I just want to say briefly two things. Um, one is a Nightingale model in Melbourne where groups of architects are getting together to design places differently. So some of the, the high-rise that hasn't been built right in the middle of Melbourne does not have transport public transport now, just parking for bikes, for example. And the, the architects get together and work with the people who are going to be living in those places to design them in a more co-housing way with more shared facilities. Um, the other is, is a lot of things coming online like churches and, and hospitals, for example, the Renewal SA project in Adelaide, where vacant buildings are being redesigned for other uses and people are being asked for their ideas. So this is the way that you start to redesign your city in a better way to engage with the people who live there. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's an excellent question. <clears throat> it gets right at the heart of some of the big challenges that we have in planning. Planning tends to be, like I said before and like a few of the other speakers have said, is fairly siloed. It doesn't do a very good job either of translating across scale from the macro down to the micro or on a temporal dimension, how things change over time. So you're right, our biggest challenge is how do we retrofit the built environments that already exist rather than just the greenfield type of development. <clears throat> and that needs to be right from the household scale with solar panels on the roof and rainwater tanks and permeable paving and chooks in the backyard all, all the way through to redeveloping the, the urban core with higher density development. <clears throat> For me, I think the critical challenge in planning is how do we put people back into the process? 
So most of the planning systems I'm familiar with around Australia have been co-opted by neoliberal ideology. Um, planning now is just there to serve the interests of the land and property development industry. Um, it's becoming incredibly politicised. Uh, so in Queensland, for example, you don't have a right anymore to uh, decide or comment on what's happening next door to you. Um, if suddenly a large development goes up next door, you don't have an opportunity to, to provide input in that because we have a, a system, a planning system, where it's presumed you would have commented on the draft town planning scheme when it was advertised, which you never got to saw, right? Um, and if you didn't comment on the draft town planning scheme and the, and, and the intent that shrined, enshrined in that scheme, then tough. Um, and that's a real worry because we've, we've kind of removed the capacity of people to be involved in, in decision-making. So, so for me, the answer, I think, is to enable planning, as you've touched on as well, to become uh, more participatory, uh, to get back to its grassroots. Um, yeah, maybe just quickly. I, I just had a quick chat with, with Janet, Janet Rice, who's the spokesperson on transport and, and city policy, I believe. Um, there is a, um, a study that came out of University of Queensland that uh, Cameron Murray did as part of his PhD that looked at value capture. And um, pretty much a, a lot of the um, construction industry and development industry says, oh, overseas, all these um, uh, different areas, they're already using um, value capture as a very smart way to reduce the um, burden on the, um, the public purse when it comes to building infrastructure and uh, renewing our cities, and we should catch up. And I said, well, we've been doing this probably for decades, but it's done behind closed walls, and it's called insider trading. And so the, the, the level of corruption in local government where these deals between the development industry and local governments where we know we are building linear infrastructure from here to there and the property prices of these adjacent um, lots will go up and there's deals being made in order to say, well, you get this one, you get this one, it's divvied up and um, you know the city benefits or the city administration benefits from higher rates and the developers um, benefit from, from buying um, property at uh, discounted prices that uh, later on they can um, use for their commercial interests. That's something that there's now academic evidence on. But because academic evidence doesn't mean anything in Australia, it's just seen as you know some um, scholarly intellectual that has produced a PhD thesis. Um, Cameron is not getting the traction. It should be. This should be all over the news. It would be an outrage in Germany. And here we just sit there and you know flick to the sports page and look at the footy. And I think that is just something that we got to change the culture here that we put up with shit. Sorry, just one more comment on, on that issue of the, the distinction between the um, new greenfield sites and the um, reconfiguring the existing centres. And that is that as far back as the late 19th century, Ebenezer Howard was saying that um, the cities are an attractor that are drawing people in and, and therefore the cities are unhealthy and congested and we need to do something about that. And whatever it is that's drawing them in, we need to create an alternative attractor out there to redistribute the population. And that began this Garden Cities movement more than a century ago. And fundamentally, that's what we're trying to do, an alternative attractor to decongest the cities, create, um, rebalance the system a little bit, give another alternative and, and, uh, and relieve some of the problems of the cities. So you don't need to build more infrastructure, you just could do it with less people in there if they have somewhere else to live. Penny, just um, Mark Riley, Moreland City Council. Um, so thanks, Neil, for mentioning the Nightingale. Just got an award, Premier's Award this week. It's called Deliberative Development. If you're interested in that, there's a new model that's been coined by, uh, coined by Sharon. Um, 
sorry, um, Sharon, um, one of my predecessors and uh, a colleague of hers. Uh, one year and one week into council, still standing. We've just got um, an award, Premier's Award for our Urban Heat Island Effect Policy on Thursday night. We've got open space policy we're implementing. We're trying to find a way to buy back some of the land from the developer contributions to recreate these spaces and we're consulting our communities at the moment about that. We're doing a whole lot of stuff. One of the other things is that we've just started up a, a better design panel and we're actually getting the community to come. We've got a whole, you know, inner urban community, highly educated. We're actually inviting those people in our community who are actually got the qualifications and live there to come to that design panel discussion and trying to find some solutions to what you're talking about. So I'm thinking we'll invite each of you all to come and present to them because I've just um, taken heaps of notes. But I, I, I predicted that under your little um, model that was going to be the commons and the community and I think you came up with co-facilitator, did you? And um, 5.0? Cohabitation, yeah. So I was trying to predict what it was but I didn't quite get it. But that's somewhere where we're going that way. Um, there's a huge pressure on us. There's a lot of backlash, a lot of anger around us being the third highest um, development um, council in the city of Melbourne. That's, you know, taking into account the greenfield sites because of the pressures on Sydney Road, Ligon Street and Nicholson Street where all the development's happening. Um, and we don't have the levers. The, gov the state government sets up sets us up to fail because they control all the planning and, and we are not constitutionally standing on our own. We're actually reliant on a, a, an act of state parliament and then there's all the trickery and the carry-on that goes there and so the polity just breaks down and we need to revolutionise that and get that fixed. But seriously, I have been wondering through the last two days whether I should resign because that pressure is really quite enormous and thinking, why, why the fuck am I doing this? Um, but you keep trying and I think I'll sort of press through and probably invite you guys along. And so this is more of a comment than a question, but it's so exciting to see the work you're doing um, because it resonates with a lot of what we were doing. And there's been a couple of conferences this year in Melbourne, in fact, the Sustainable Cities Conference and there's been others. So keep it up. There's a lot more work to do and I just, one of the things we do need to do is to bring those communities out and we're doing that. We've had to reset a number of programs, you know, we're reconsulting on one of our parks because it's so precious and the, the buildings are going up so high around it. We've just spent another few hundred thousand dollars and delayed the, the development of that park or the redevelopment of it by six months. Um, so that's just one example of what we're having to do. So there's a whole lot of resetting and reorganising re but still looking for some more ideas and uh, one of them was that we put 10 of our councils onto the Urban Planning Committee because we used to have four or five of them on it and now one of them refuses to cooperate. But the way to try and get around that was to get the whole of the council to take responsibility for what the Urban Planning Committee is doing or not doing in that context. So, I don't know, I'm just throwing all it out there. It's, it's difficult and complex and please keep giving us some answers and I'll get you to come down to Moreland. Thanks. Don't resign, no, I'm, I'm, I'm too inspired by this conference. Do you have any comments you wanted to add to that? Or? I might yep. just do one quick um, advertisement. Um, we've um, 
brought the OASC, the Open and Agile Smart Cities Network, to Australia. It's an international network started in Denmark, um, initially with funding from the EU, and by now it has over 100 cities um, internationally that have signed up. Membership is free. Um, only cities can become a member, and pretty much it's a community of practice of city representatives that are you know, thinking along similar lines of how can we ensure, especially in the in the smart city context, for them to not be locked into certain vendors, for them to become proprietary. They're looking at, um, obviously, open data and open data policies, but it goes wider than that. It's also looking at the question around retrofitting, for instance. And so having that exchange of knowledge and experience across different uh, jurisdictions and different countries has been quite, quite valuable. And you don't have the Cisco's and IBM's whispering in your ear um, um, which probably is tainted by some other kinds of interests and objectives. So it's really limited to, to cities, whereas a lot of the other networks, um, they were pretty much industry peak bodies. And so you kind of then got to think, well, if they push out certain messages, what's their actual motivation there? Uh, so don't resign, please. Um, you, you might have all seen the Four Corners TV show recently looking at the Gold Coast and the, uh, and the mayor and, um, and some of the issues there around corruption. Uh, and so I think, again, this gets back to the importance of participating in polity, participating in processes and, uh, and, and retaking councils back from developers. And that starts uh, at the grassroots level, right? Um, did you know about the city's power partnership? Is it Mark? Yeah. yeah. Did you know about the city's power partnership? It's specifically for local government by the Climate Council. So it's a way for councils to, uh, to first of all, be part of that and then to get a lot of help in terms of uh, climate change um, advice and issues and um, practical ways of going forward. So, yeah. We've actually, sorry, there is there are lots of good news stories, but we're just um, launching our hyd hydrogen powered um, truck and you know waste management. So it's a well first. We're using water captured from the roof, which is going to be turned into hydrogen using renewable, um, you know, solar panels and and other renewable energy to generate that. And we're using trucks made in Dandenong, which we're still making here in Australia, even though we've given up on cars. And so those local cars are going, local trucks will be used in our city to to make trucks that are about 60% quieter and they run on renewable energy and it's rather exciting. So stay tuned to this space. But that's because you've got a really brilliant people working in the council too. So, you know, it matters as to who you employ and, and what ideas they've got as well. Is it my turn? Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> my name's Robert. I'm from Byron and I'm near Tweed. So, but I hadn't heard of your project um, I really found this whole talk really fascinating. And um, I just had a question, you know, I've just come to visit Canberra here and I see an amazing amount of open space, which is really amazing for a city. And uh, a lot of it is um, just grass. And I just wonder, is there any, it could be used for like my, um, community gardens and for growing food and all this kind of stuff and look really interesting and it's kind of... Um, I'd call it um, multi-sort of looking, you know, instead of just plain. And I just wonder if uh, you've got any comment about that kind of activity in a city like this. So uh, my research looks at urban green space. That's my, uh, that's my field. Um, I guess when I looked at Canberra, I thought the same thing, especially coming in from the air, looking around at a lot of green. And then the second reaction being a lot of it looks like it's quite manicured. Um, 
I've been doing research with colleagues in China looking at, and, and a few other cities, looking at what we call informal green space. So uh, one of my PhD students uh, used to be at Logan City Council. I won't say too much more because um, she's keenly watching the TV to see who gets arrested next. Um, but uh, one of the points that she made is that every time they, they mowed the lawn uh, in Logan, completely mowed all the lawns around the city, it cost millions of dollars. Now that's insane when you think about the amount of money that's just blowing on mowing lawns. Uh, and one of the one of the uh, ways that we might combat urban heat island effects, uh, create a greater sense of community cohesion through urban agriculture, community gardens, but also bring animals and plants back into the city is looking more at these kind of informal characteristics of green spaces. So um, Emma Merritt called them rambunctious gardens, letting them get a little bit overgrown, a little bit rambunctious, allowing the densities to increase. Um, and a lot of people will tell you that, that residents are opposed to that. Uh, but our research in China, where uh, green space is at a premium, it's very, very scarce, we found that residents were um, about 78 to 80% of the people we spoke with were very amenable to the idea of increasing vegetation densities, of bringing uh, animals back into the city, of, uh, of cooling the city down, and they'd quite willingly give up some of that manicured look uh, to the space. So I think you're onto something there. This is a slightly different um, option. As we travel around the inland parts of Australia, a lot of councils have attractors for grain nomads and other people who are nomadic to stay in their city for a while. So there's lots of free camping sites, there's free water, there's dump points, everything. But when you travel around the, down the east coast of Australia and down here to Canberra, those free camping sites are non-existent. And, and so one way to get people to kind of stay in your city a while and spend some money is, is to make it a little bit easier for people. And there's thousands, like literally thousands of people who are now living a more nomadic mobile life. So perhaps converting these places. I mean, in Tassie, there are places where you can even get power for free, you know, and you go to Sydney and that isn't even a public dump point in Sydney. So just the disparity across Australia in terms of how welcoming you are to people who have a slightly different way of living is something to think about as well. I, I had an interesting experience about 15, 16 years ago. I was, in, I was in Morocco and I can't remember which city it was, but it had this major um, park in the centre of the city that was an olive grove and, and um, people could go there freely and collect olives and so, so uh, olive trees were kind of a major part of their kind of diet and so on. So, um, and I thought, well, why can't we do some fruit trees in, in uh, Sydney? And I was working at South Sydney Council at the time and my job was public domain manager and we were looking at street trees and what we could do and I, I proposed some fruit trees. Instead of, you know, trees that don't produce anything, what, what about fruit trees? And the immediate response was, well, there'd be insurance issues if, you know, um, fruit fell on the ground, someone slipped on it and so on. And, and the other issue is, well, do you want... Um, uh, fruit that's polluted by all the cars going by and so on. So, so I think there, in, I just think we need to think of cities and our settlements more broadly than just the focus of the capital cities. It, we need to think in terms of a broader network and how do, we, um, how do we create other places that are other alternatives. So you can either fight within an existing system or you can create an alternative as... Uh, 
uh, as Kate Rayworth said this morning, the Buckminster Fuller quote. So you, we all have a certain amount of energy and, and time on this planet. And you have to choose where you want to fight, what battles you want to fight. And I think that's an important thing uh, that we need to do. We need to think about whether we're fighting the existing system or we're creating a new system. You can do both, but be, acknowledge that there are, there are two options and choose where you want to allocate your time and resources. I think Canberra looks the way it is because it would please the Queen to have everything turned into English gardens. <laughs> I just made that up, I don't know. But, you know, if, if you kind of arrive here, I completely agree, there's a certain impression about these, these very open, wide vistas, about uh, manicuredness, um, the landscaping, and obviously, you know, this is the capital that has a lot of international representation, and the symbolic um, kind of aspect of, of the city more so than any other place, and I think that might play a role in there. Um, but I also second what, um, what, what Stephen, for instance, just said about the insurance issue. We have um, the Sunshine Coast Council up, um, um, near where I am, and uh, they have all the right lingo and language in their policies, in their marketing, on their website about being citizen-led and citizen-driven and citizen-everything, and then they fell the, the fruit trees. I think maybe some of you would have seen this um, in, the, um, in the media, and it caused a lot of upset, because it's very counterintuitive to all these values and principles that they articulate in their policies, and then overnight they said, oh, but you don't have insurance, and so that's why you don't get a permit. Oh, but the permit is free, while well, the insurance isn't, and and, um, you know, there was this bureaucratic response that people actually didn't really appreciate and this very crude instrument of just, you know, getting these um, tradies in to, to cut down the trees. And it was for very dubious arguments, similar to what you explained about, oh, someone could trip on the, um, the rotten mango that no one has um, picked up earlier. Hi, thank you very much for your presentations. My question is around... Um, the, the city 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 models, um, but also connected to what all of you are saying. Um, in, in Canberra, for example, I've observed how the city administrators or officials have tried to um, have tried to create a, a creative spaces, but by doing it in that way, a sort of a top-down way, it kind of takes away the creativity. So, for example, oh, shipping containers are cool, let's have a shipping container village, or yarn bombing is cool, let's put yarn bombing in a particular place of the city that not many people are going to. And so my, my question is to, to keep evolving the city and to progress to the, the higher levels that you, each of you and all of us would like to see, does the government need to step in more or maybe step back more and let citizens be more innovative and help them be innovative and care for the city and create that ecosystem organically? I, um, I completely agree. I think the answer is they need to, to do both, in, in my point of view. So I uh, completely agree that if you just have, for instance, you know, innovation on a label and you, you tack it somewhere and say, oh, there we go, we've, you know, big launch, everyone's invited to our new innovation hub, uh, co-creation kind of um, center or li living lab, um, a lot of the time, um, be because it's led by government and it's led from this top-down kind of um, culture, it doesn't attract necessarily the level of diversity that you 
required if it came from a more um, grassroots, organic, um, locally grown, if you like, wholesomeness. And so we've we've been researching these these hubs that are currently mushrooming everywhere, particularly in the context of Australia's national innovation statement and this this big fetishism around um, startups and entrepreneurship. Um, and sometimes they actually gel, sometimes they actually take off, but they attract a certain type of um, of clientele of a certain type of audience. So it's mostly younger rather than older. It's mostly rather, you know, um, male whites rather than rest of the um, kind of spectrum of diversity. And so what we've been doing as a counter movement is, is studying existing ones that don't have this, you know, innovation, whatever, on their on their label, on their door, and just looking at what they are doing already. And so kind of in answer to your question, I think um, they do have to step, like government has to step in more in order to better understand and listen. So just following a much more anthropological approach of actually going out into the community and leaving their offices and just, you know, hanging out, immerse yourself, get a sense of what it is, rather than just to kind of appear at um, certain functions and launches and then um, having the right constituents there that don't ask tricky questions and then kind of disappearing again very quickly. I think urban, urban planners, the ones that um, we've been working with, they get very excited about borrowing methodologies and approaches from um, anthropology, which is very different to just having surveys and questionnaires and inviting people on a Sunday afternoon to sit in a room and then, you know, discuss and be consulted whether the casino is going to be green or the casino is going to be blue, but it's going to be casino no matter what. Um, and so I think that's where government has to step in. And then government has to also step back when it comes to giving people more rope. So I think that example about the fruit trees, for instance, I would think there's probably other ways of dealing with it where if you were to give them more rope around that issue of about parkour or graffiti or um, alfresco dining or whatever it is, there's already a lot going on. It would actually um, create more social ownership where people actually feel that they have an ability to not just do whatever the development corporations put on their um, you know, development fences about you know, the, the city is there to consume, to, to live, work, play, um, sleep, die. Um, there's, there's more to the city and I think if there's more examples of what that more means, um, it would give a, a positive signal to the community that the local government isn't just um, this, this weird abstract entity, but it's actually, you know, other humans sitting there trying to do their job. Um, I think it's important to appreciate that the city, um, historically, is the physical expression of our values. And uh, so, that hist historically, cities were built around a temple or a synagogue, or a mosque, or a church, uh, to express the authority and power of that central institution. Uh, we shifted that in the Renaissance, and we had the, the, the big open square with the council chambers at one end and the church at the other end to talk about a balance between those values, between the secular and the sacred values, if you like. And what is happening now, in my opinion, is is that people, the general population, who, you know, in the past are just the hoi polloi, um, want a say, a more active role in the design of our places, the places that we live in. And, um, and so we want to have an impact on what the city looks like. So Canberra looks like it is because it's an expression of authority and power of a modern city and a, and a modern country. That's what, how it was built to express that in its grandeur, if you like. So 
this, this desire, as we're becoming more educated, more connected and more willing to be involved, more able to be involved, is changing the dynamics of cities. It's reducing the power of the centralised authority and increasing the power of the citizens. And that's the direction we want to go. I think that's the direction I'd like to see society go, where there's more sense of equality and less hierarchy and being told what to do and how to build things and how to live. And, and that's what, you know, one of the, the important tensions which we really should appreciate, that the internet too is enabling this connection. It's giving us access to information and ideas and the ability to do things that we couldn't do in the past. So, that, yeah, so it's changing the way that we see our cities and the, how we create the environment around us. Could I just give you a couple of examples from local government where we had a lot of involvement with the public in terms of designing places. Um, so, for example, we were redesigning a community park and we took a blank slate, basically, and did some co-design with the community of that place. We even took it to the local mobile school and got the little kids to draw in what they would like to see on the plan. Um, but then people often want a lot more than what the constraints spatially or financially allow. And so we went back with them and to them and said, look, you can't have a barbecue because there's a barbecue in the park next door, etc." So local government does try to do that for the large part. Um, another example is, for example this whole idea of water-sensitive urban design, which is where the water industry is going now, instead of putting concrete everywhere, even your roundabouts and things are being designed as, as areas to filter and clean your water. Um, but then sometimes that has extra maintenance involved. So rain gardens that go into neighbourhoods, people are sometimes asked to look after that. But then people have to be willing to do that. So it's, 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 it's a partnership between local government and the community um, that has to be strengthened. And it's a two-way process. It's not one or the other. Yeah, I think, I think the change is, is us as, as passive... Um, you know, uh, residents, as you like, or, you know, acceptance of whatever the situation is and, and bec to becoming some, you know, citizens that are more actively involved. And, uh, yeah, both shifts have to happen. Oh, I think we're going to have to wrap up there. Sorry. Um, we're, we're about five minutes over into afternoon tea time, but I just want to thank once again our amazing panellists. It was such an interesting and exciting session. <laughs>